Let's turn together in the Bible to the Gospel of John, chapter 1. We're going to read verse 43 to verse 51. The next day he purposed to go into Galilee, and he found Philip. And Jesus said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, of the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you, that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Let's pray. Almighty God, we are so grateful that you have enabled us to be here at this time, to assemble in your holy name, to praise you, to pray to you, to hear from you. And Lord, we come because of you. We don't come together because of men, because of what we can offer one another. But Lord, we come together because you are worthy and you have the words of eternal life. We want to hear from Jesus. We want to see him. And Lord, I pray that as we consider this passage this morning together, you would enable us by your Holy Spirit to understand, to see what we need to see, to grasp what this is written for, and Lord, that we would have our hearts enlarged, that this wouldn't just be an intellectual thing, a mere intellectual exercise, Father, but we would in turn worship you, follow you with more eagerness giving you praise. Thank you so much for this time. I commit this time to you. In Jesus' name, amen. What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? And how does a person become a follower of Jesus? We began answering these questions last Sunday we started to look at how the earliest disciples of Jesus became his followers. And we were looking at what the, the, what the earliest disciples of Jesus have to teach us about becoming disciples of Jesus. If you didn't get to hear last week's sermon, it's, this is a sequel. This morning is a sequel to that, so I encourage you to go back and listen to it online. Usually when we look at the origins of something or the beginnings of something, we find that the beginnings are prototypical. 
That is that the first instance of something usually contains enduring principles for all time. So when we look at how the first disciples of Jesus became Christians, we learn lessons about how all people become Christians or how, you know, a prototype for becoming a follower of Jesus. And this is what we saw last week. We saw that what was involved in them becoming followers of of Jesus sheds permanent light uh, for all time on this topic. First of all, we saw last week that becoming a follower of Jesus means becoming a student or a pupil of Jesus, a learner from Jesus. Following Jesus does not mean imitating his life and habits. Now, that's a good thing to do. Let's all pursue the imitation of Christ and and imitate his life and habits. But when the Bible talks about being a follower of Jesus, it's not talking about that. It's talking about following him as your teacher, following him as your guide, as your shepherd. The follow me language is actually shepherd language, as we'll see throughout the Gospel of John. I'm going to lead you. I'm going to say this way. And as sheep, we follow him that way. He is our guide. He is our light in darkness. He is our teacher. And we looked last week about how much the Gospel of John stresses Jesus as a teacher, right? So we learn from him. And we, we learn from him the truth about ourselves, about our world, and about God, and we discard the lies as we learn the revelation of God from Jesus. Secondly, last, last Sunday, we saw that the first disciples of Jesus, this was a major point, would not have become disciples of Jesus unless they were, unless they had been disciples of John the Baptist. Okay? So, we talked about this last week. They would not have become disciples of Jesus or followers of him unless they had been followers of John the Baptist. And what that means is that unless they had availed themselves of God's preparatory revelation, they would not have followed the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's an enduring principle there for us. God has given this world preparatory revelation, not only in John the Baptist. He's kind of the culminating uh, preparatory revelation. But God has spoken to this world through nature, the Bible tells us. All of nature testifies of the existence of God, his power, and his wisdom. Uh, God's spoken to us through our conscience. We know that there is right and wrong. We know that there is judgment. God has spoken to us through prophets in the past, before Jesus came, through Moses, through all the prophets in the Old Testament. And the earliest disciples of Jesus, Andrew, John, and Peter, which we looked at last week, they were men who were deeply religious and spiritually serious men. They had taken the preparatory revelation of God very seriously. They were interested in the question of God. There's a God. There's a creator who created me. I want to know who this God is. It's very important. And I, I'm concerned about my soul. I'm concerned about my sins. I'm concerned by the fact that my conscience condemns me and I know judgments to come. I'm also concerned about what Moses wrote. I take very seriously what Moses wrote. I'm sure Andrew and John could say. And what the prophets wrote. And they were looking forward to Messiah. And so when John the Baptist came on the scene, the interesting thing we saw is that these men left their homes, left their work, 
and went and became disciples of John the Baptist. They were hanging out with John in the wilderness, which is why when Jesus walked by and John said, there's the Lamb of God, they heard him and they followed him, right? So we see what kind of men they were. They were seeking God. They were seeking truth. And this gives us a most crucial lesson and an encouraging lesson. It's crucial because unless we too are seeking God, seeking truth, and availing ourselves of God's preparatory revelation, we will probably not become followers of Jesus. And I say probably because I know as well as you that God could raise up disciples by some extraordinary providence, right? He can, by an extraordinary providence, get a hold of someone who's not seeking him at all. Someone who's not availing themselves of preparatory revelation. And there may be even people in our assembly, our church here, that can say, yeah, that's my story. I was not seeking God, and God got a hold of my life. God can do that, but we are not to presume upon his extraordinary providence and say, well, if God wants me, he'll get me someday, you know? So I just won't think about it. I won't, I won't seek him because if he wants me, he can find me. That's not at all the case with the earliest disciples of Jesus. And that serves as a crucial lesson and warning for us. This is the ordinary way that it works. God's ordinary providence. That people come to him through availing themselves of his preparatory revelation. And we need to take heed like they did. But it's also encouraging, this is an encouraging fact for us, that if we seek God through the ordinary means, we will find Christ. That's an encouraging thing. I think it would be pretty discouraging if the first disciples of Jesus all came to him through extraordinary providence. Don't you think? Like, all of them came to Christ because because of a Damascus Road experience. I think that'd be discouraging. We think, oh, well, that hasn't happened to me, so God's not interested, right? And so that's not how it is. That's encouraging that that can happen, but I think it's more encouraging that the first disciples came in the ordinary way. So they set the tone. They show us the typical way that we become followers and by becoming followers find salvation. This is really very serious. This morning we're going to look at the next two disciples, the next two people who became disciples, the the next earliest ones and consider the lessons that they have to teach us. In chapter 1, John, after his prologue, takes us to the witness of John the Baptist, and after the witness of John the Baptist, tells us about the first five disciples of Jesus that Jesus met and who followed him. Last week, we looked at Andrew, John, and Peter, and this week, we're going to look at the last two, which is Philip and Nathaniel. So first, we'll look at the short account of Philip. Secondly, the lengthier account of and significant account of Nathaniel, as we'll see. And then we'll briefly close with Jesus' promise to all of his followers. So first of all, Philip. Look at verse 43 with me. Now, right away in our text, we have a difficulty. The question that is a difficulty here is who is the he that purposes to go to Galilee? Now, some of your translations may not be written the way mine is. Mine just says, the next day he purposed to go into Galilee and he found Philip. Some of your translations may fill in the blanks on who the he is. In fact, most translations seem to indicate the he is Jesus, 
Jesus purposes to go into Galilee, and Jesus finds Philip. Yet many commentators on the Gospel of John think that Andrew is the one that's in view here. And the text, the Greek text itself, isn't perfectly clear on who is the one who is purposing to go into Galilee and who finds Philip. Notice the flow of thought from verse 40. So in verse 40, we have Andrew in view. One of the two who heard John, who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. And notice what it says here. He, Andrew, found first his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which translated means Christ. Andrew brought him to Jesus. Now, this could be an aside right here. Jesus looked at him, Peter, and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. Verse 43 resumes. The next day, he, Andrew, purposed to go into Galilee, and he found Philip. So many commentators point out that the flow of thought could very much be speaking of Andrew. And then, of course, the next thing says, And Jesus said to Philip, Follow me, after Andrew brings Philip to Jesus. Besides the flow of thought, commentators also point out another, give another argument that it's Andrew, and they say this, that in this story so far, everybody else is brought to Jesus by someone else. Andrew and John go to Jesus because of John the Baptist. Peter goes to Jesus because of Andrew. Nathaniel goes to Jesus because of Philip. And so the argument is, everyone in this story is brought to Jesus by someone else, And so it's likely that Andrew brought Philip to Jesus as well. And that would make sense because the text does seem to be emphasizing the natural impulse to share Jesus Christ once you found him. Can you agree that it's it's quite natural to want to share Jesus once you found him? It's quite natural to want to share anything good with the people that you love once you found it, right? You find a great deal online or some great restaurant in town, right? You want to tell your loved ones about it. How much more when you find the truth of God, the light of the world, the Savior of men? And so it does seem like the text here is emphasizing people bringing people to Jesus when they find him. And D.A. Carson comments, that has been the foundational principle of truly Christian expansion ever since. New followers of Jesus bear witness of him to others who in turn become disciples and repeat the process. That's kind of the story of how Christianity has expanded. It it hasn't expanded just through Christians finding Jesus and doing nothing and God in extraordinary providences finding, finding new people. It has ordinarily and uh, greatly expanded through people like you and me, just simply bringing other people to Jesus. And we need to see that at that important point. If we don't bring people to Jesus, as this early story is showing, then it's probable that people won't be coming to Jesus. It's very important that we bring them to Jesus, and as the text should show us, it's a natural impulse. But it is entirely possible that Jesus is the one who purposed to go into Galilee and found Philip. And certainly Jesus himself and God does that. God himself will find people himself, and this could be an an example of that. It wouldn't be the first time that Jesus specifically targets Philip, actually. You remember in chapter 6 of the Gospel of John, 
when there's a large crowd before Jesus and Jesus would like to feed them? Who is the disciple that Jesus specifically asks? How are we going to feed all these people? It's Philip. He specifically asks Philip the question, Philip, we need to feed these people. What are we going to do about it? And Philip, of course, is confused and doesn't know how it's possible. And interestingly, in chapter 14 of the Gospel of John, when Philip comes to Jesus and says, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough, Jesus doesn't say, have you been with me all this time, Philip, and you don't know me? But he says, have I been with you all this time? Maybe it's not that significant of a difference, but it perhaps emphasizes not that Philip came to him, but that he came to Philip. Have I been with you? I came to you. I've been with you all this time. Do you not yet know me? Still, I lean towards this being Andrew. The only problem is, why would Andrew purpose to go to Galilee after he just found the Messiah? And the answer, if it is Andrew, is this. That even though verse 43, if it's Andrew, doesn't say Jesus' purpose to go into Galilee, it's evident that he did purpose to go into Galilee, that Jesus did. Because in a few days, Jesus will be at a wedding in Cana. If you see the beginning of chapter 2, Jesus and his disciples will be a wedding at a wedding in Galilee. So Jesus clearly was going to leave the wilderness to go. And perhaps this is just saying Andrew purposed to go with him into Galilee. Either way, if it's Jesus or Andrew, here's a crucial point for us to see, brothers and sisters. Before going to Galilee, Philip is found. The text does not say he goes to Galilee and finds Philip, but he purposes to go to Galilee and finds Philip to bring Philip along with him. And what that means is, again, Philip, like Andrew, John, and Peter is in the wilderness with John the Baptist. And so we have another reinforcement of this very important point that the earliest disciples of Jesus became disciples of Jesus because they were seeking God and they were disciples of John the Baptist. This is a Philip gives his uh, reinforcement to this principle as well. This is how it ordinarily works. If you don't seek, you will not find. And we're going to see that Nathaniel too was a serious seeker of God. And so all five of the earliest disciples tell us the same principle, this warning and encouragement, if you don't seek, you will not find. But what is the unique lesson that Philip gives to us? And here it is. In the, second, in the last part of verse 43, Jesus says to him, follow me. This is the unique thing we learn from, Philip's, from Philip becoming a disciple. Now, if you're a reader of the New Testament, if you're a reader of the Gospels, you know that this saying is, characteristic, is a characteristic phrase and saying of Jesus. Follow me. Jesus says, follow me all throughout his ministry to people that he meets. Right at the very beginning, like right now, all throughout, he calls people to follow him. And even at the very end, when he's about to ascend into heaven, he tells his, follow, his disciples, he tells Peter and others 
to follow him, showing that this following him is not merely something we do physically because he's about to ascend into heaven and he says, follow me. So he's not saying, come on up on the cloud with me, right? But this is a characteristic saying of Jesus. Beginning all throughout and even at the very end, Jesus Christ constantly invited men and women to follow him and he still does this day, okay? Jesus is calling people to follow him. And this is a wonderful demonstration of Jesus being full of grace. Because what we see here is that becoming a follower of Jesus is not simply something that happens from our end. Okay? It's not just that we want to follow him. It's not just a human idea to follow Jesus. Right? It's not just the Christian who decides and has the idea, I'm going to follow Jesus. You know, I detect in him a good guide and I'm going to come and pester him that I might follow him. But we find that from the other end as well, from God's side, from Jesus' side, it's his idea as well. Becoming a follower of Jesus is something that God wants you to do. If you don't become a follower of Jesus, you're actually disobeying God. But this shows God's heart and his character that he wants disciples, he wants to lead people out of darkness, he wants to save people. That's why he came into the world. He came into the world to save sinners and to show them the truth. And so he invites us, see his grace in this, brothers and sisters, see his compassion for sinners from his end, calling you, follow me. And yet, sadly, not everyone heeds this call. The prologue of the Gospel of John says, the light came into the world, but the darkness did not comprehend it. And his own did not even receive him. And yet, there are people who did receive him, and Philip was one of them. He followed Jesus. Because Philip, according to John chapter 10, verse 27, 28, Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life. And no one can pluck them out of my hand. It's a beautiful promise of God and of Jesus to those who follow him. Those who follow me are my sheep who hear my voice. I call to this, I call to this world and I say, come, and my sheep come. And I give them eternal life. That's what you get for following him. That's what you miss for not following him. And he takes care of us as the good shepherd. It's a beautiful thing. So this is the unique lesson we learn from Philip. Jesus wants disciples. He invites us and he does not reluctantly lead you into eternal life. Isn't that a beautiful thing? Fear not, little flock. It is the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Secondly, let's look at Nathaniel and what he can teach us about becoming a follower of Jesus. Now friends, this incident here that's recorded in chapter 1 with Nathaniel is a fascinating incident. It is a fascinating choice that the Holy Spirit made when he inspired John to write this story. And I'd like you just to consider something here. I want you to consider that more is said about Nathaniel in this story than any of the other five. 
We, we are given more information about Nathaniel and the kind of person he is and, and Jesus' finding him or him finding Jesus. We're given more information about him. And so it's interesting, isn't it, and striking and surprising that nothing more is said about Nathaniel of any significance elsewhere in the Bible, in the Gospel, even in the Gospel of John. You've got Andrew, you've got John, you've got Peter. And Philip, who Philip appears other places in the Gospel of John. Peter, of course, is the apostle who gets the most airtime, and yet Nathaniel gets the most airtime here in chapter 1. So much so that you think that John is setting the stage, introducing Nathaniel and setting the stage for some great things he's going to say about Nathaniel later on, and nothing else comes. So the question is, why so much focus on Nathaniel if nothing else is said about him of significance anywhere else? And when you think about it, the answer is obvious, that what John is doing here is not setting the stage at all for something else. John isn't introducing Nathaniel so that later you can learn something more about him. He's not setting the stage for something else, but what's going on here with Nathaniel is the whole sum of what John wants us to see and to learn from. This incident is the important incident, and it's written to instruct us, the readers, about becoming followers of Jesus. It's written for our instruction. It's not setting the stage for later. This is it. It's not about Nathaniel, but it's about Jesus and the powerful lessons that this teaches us about following him. So let's consider Nathaniel's case with that in mind. This is a very important incident for us. Look at verse 45. Philip finds Nathaniel. Frederick Farrar comments that Philip exercised the divinest prerogative of friendship. I thought that's, what a powerful statement. You know, what does it mean to be a good friend? And I love how he puts it, the divinest prerogative of friendship. If you really want to be a good friend, you're going to go to your friends and tell them about Jesus. I mean, this is convicting, isn't it? And until we've told our friends about Jesus, have we really carried out the prerogatives of friendship? Obviously, Philip and Nathaniel were close friends for him to go and tell Nathaniel about Jesus. But the beautiful thing is that through faith, their friendship was taken to a higher plane. You know, they were close friends before, but how much more united did they become through faith in Jesus Christ? Their friendship was raised from a mere earthly level to a spiritual level. And how we wish that to be true for all of our friends and family. Because what it takes to elevate a friendship beyond the earthly to the spiritual is faith in Jesus Christ, is united belief and follow and united following of Jesus. You, sharing in eternal life and the fellowship with God together. May we as Christians exercise the divinest prerogative of friendship and tell our family members and our friends about Jesus. And may God raise 
our relationship to the spiritual plane. He tells Nathanael, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. In verse 41, Andrew tells Peter, we have found the Messiah. And in verse 45, Philip says the same thing to Nathanael, but fleshes out what, the Messiah, what it means to find the Messiah or who the Messiah is. The Messiah is the one that Moses and the prophets wrote about. Moses and the prophets wrote about the coming of a Savior, the coming of a person, a man, who would come and bring in righteousness and salvation and blessing for God's people and for the world. And Moses and the prophets give detailed predictions of the Messiah, don't they? Detailed predictions of who this person's going to be, where this person's going to come from, when this person will come, what this person will do. And Christians, for the last 2,000 years, have always maintained this, that we have found the one whom Moses and the prophets wrote about. This is, this is uh, enduring here. What, what Philip says to Nathaniel, we still say today in the 21st century, it's still our testimony to the world. We dare not lose this testimony, brothers and sisters. We dare not make our testimony of Christ less than this. But we still proclaim God predicted, prophesied, promised, we have found the one that Moses and the prophets wrote about. When we evangelize, when we share the gospel with people, we should tell them this. We should take them to the Old Testament. We should tell them of the supernatural nature of our, 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 of our faith and how God has been faithful in fulfilling his word. I wonder what kind of conversation that would lead to. And can you imagine the excitement when Philip is saying this and the astonishment of Nathaniel, and when he says, who? He says, Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph. And Nathaniel's taken back by this, verse 46, Nazareth? Galilee, the larger area which Nazareth is found in, was despised by the Judeans. And if you remember in chapter 7 of the Gospel of John, the leaders of Israel didn't expect anything to come out of Galilee. They said, search the scriptures, no prophet comes out of Galilee. So that whole region was off limits in the minds of the leaders of Israel. But if Galilee was despised by the Judeans, it, it seems apparent from Nathaniel's comment that Nazareth within Galilee was despised by the Galileans. Okay, So if Galilee's off limits, Nathaniel, Nazareth is even more off limits. Can anything good? He doesn't just say, can something that good come out of Nazareth? He doesn't say, he says, can anything possibly good come out of Nazareth? We only know of bad coming out of there. This is an astonishing thing that God would choose Nazareth for Jesus to come out of. D.A. Carson comments, the fact that Jesus was reared in Nazareth not only obscured his origins in Bethlehem for those who did not search very far, but also reflected the self-abasement of the man from heaven. 
He was known as Jesus of Nazareth or Jesus the Nazarene, not Jesus the Bethlehemite, with all the royal Davidic overtones that would have provided. So there's at least two astonishing things here that we should take away from the fact that Jesus was reared in Nazareth. Number one, as Carson points out, it obscured his origins in Bethlehem for those who did not search very far. Now, you remember I mentioned in the introduction of the Gospel of John that God has, in, has intentionally done things in a relatively obscure way. Remember this? In the way that Scripture can, is written, sometimes you wonder, God, why didn't you write it a little bit more clear? It's clear. I mean, if you really study all Christians... As evangelical Protestant Christians, we believe in what's called the perspicuity of Scripture. That means the clarity of Scripture. That doesn't mean everything in the Bible is clear, but it does mean, you know, if you're honest and you're reading, that which you need to know for salvation is clear. It's clear enough. But still, we recognize that God says things in often rather obscure ways, does things in rather obscure ways. And here's an example of one that it was thought that Jesus came from Nazareth. And that fact right away wrote Jesus off in the minds of so many, right? No one comes out of Galilee. And so he can't be the Messiah. It's, oh, it's over. It's done. They were, they were prejudiced against anyone coming out of Galilee. And it's, it's intentional for those who did not search very far. God intends to obscure things in a relative way so that he will weed out those who are not actually lovers of truth and seekers of him. Okay? Is it possible that the Messiah could have been... uh, uh, They knew Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Is it not possible that the Messiah could have been born in Bethlehem and reared in Nazareth? Yes, that's how the story went. But you got to love truth, to seek, to be patient, and to learn. Maybe Jesus is the Messiah. I should ask where he was actually born. No, they didn't do that because they were prejudiced against him. So here we, we have a lesson here for us that we need to love truth and to seek patiently, and we will find And the other thing that this shows us, that Jesus was reared in Nazareth, as Carson says, is the self-abasement of Jesus. That God, when he came into the world, chose to take to himself the label of one of the most despised places, if not the most despised place in Israel. I will happily come into the world and be called a Nazarene. This just seems like it's God's way, doesn't it? Friend of sinners confounder of the wise. (laughs) And even this reveals something of the nature of who God is. Nathaniel asks, can anything good come out of Nazareth? The commentator, the 19th century commentator, Charles Ellicott says, from Nazareth, the all good cometh. (laughs) not just a good came out of Nazareth, my friends, but if we would rightly understand the all good, the best thing came out of Nazareth.
we may say with confidence that Jesus Christ put Nazareth on the map. In reply to Nathaniel, Philip says, Come and see. This is the second time in chapter 1. We see in verse 39, Jesus invite Andrew and John to come also and see. And this could be a mundane statement. Yeah, just come and see. Or there could be something deeper here, again, pointing to the fact that the gospel is full of invitation. And so it is today. We are invited to come and see for ourselves the all good that has come out of Nazareth. Everyone is invited. To Nathaniel's credit, he went to see, and that decision affected his life forever. He could have just said, nothing good comes out of Galilee, let alone Nazareth, but he didn't. And as I said, prejudice often keeps people from even examining, let alone becoming followers of Jesus. If you've ever read John Bunyan's book, The Holy War, have you heard of that book, The Holy War by John Bunyan? Um, it's an allegory like Pilgrim's Progress, and it's about a, a walled city called Mansoul that represents a human being, and it gets taken over by Satan and then redeemed by God. And Bunyan is kind of a master of allegory, and so he has all these colorful characters, and the different gates of the city are called things like the eye gate and the ear gate and such. And when Satan takes over the city... Satan stations at the ear gate, and Bunyan says the ear gate is, is the gate that you know Satan and God most commonly try to get into the city through the ear. And he says he stations at the ear gate Mr. Prejudice with 60 deaf men under his command. <laughs> the point is, if you're prejudiced, you're not going to hear. And Satan knows this. Nathaniel was not prejudiced, and he went to his credit. And in verse 47, brothers and sisters, we come now to the main thing. And if you take nothing else from this sermon, this is the thing that I, I want us to see most clearly. We come now to the main thing in this passage. And I would even say in this entire story of the five earliest disciples coming to Jesus, this is the crucial thing in the passage that John the Evangelist and that Jesus wants us to seize upon because when Nathaniel comes to Jesus and Jesus sees Nathaniel, Jesus makes a statement about this man that is incredibly important and he even calls us to look at him with the word behold. When you see the word behold, we need to stop, pause, look very carefully. Jesus says in verse 47, behold. What do we behold? We behold Nathaniel. Look at this guy. Check him out. An Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. This is the first theologically substantial thing that Jesus says in the Gospel of John. And it is loaded with meaning, brothers and sisters. You know, we're all, we've already... We've already heard that the Gospel of John is about Jesus being our teacher, right? And Jesus coming into the world to bring light and to show us the truth about ourselves, this world, and about God. Here's the first theologically substantial thing Jesus says. And he calls us, he doesn't say this privately to Nathaniel. He doesn't say, Nathaniel, I, come here, you're an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. He actually is speaking to the others and to us because it's recorded. 
So Jesus is saying, hey, everybody, look at this guy. Let me tell you something about him so that you can all learn something. This guy is an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. He says two things here. First of all, Nathaniel is a true Israelite amidst many Israelites. Nathaniel is what an Israelite is supposed to be. And what we see here is Jesus is calling our attention to a major theme throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, and that is that not they are not all Israelites who are of Israel. Okay? Just because you belong to the nation of Israel, just because you are a physical child of Abraham, just because you are an Israelite in the flesh, doesn't mean that you are actually a child of Abraham and an Israelite before God. This is a major theme in the Old and the New Testament. And so Jesus, the first theologically substantial thing he says in the Gospel of John is to affirm that theme. And he says, yes, within, yes with, there's one nation of Israel, and yes, there's lots of Israelites, but within that nation, not all are true Israelites. Here is a true Israelite right here. That's the first thing he says. The second thing he says is, he tells us what a true Israelite is. Yes, we're going to get to that. He tells us what a true Israelite is in his second affirmation. These are both huge affirmations. What makes an Israelite a true Israelite is this, in whom is no deceit, or as some translations say, no guile, or another way you could look at this is this, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no Jacob. He's an Israel, not a Jacob. You see? Now Jacob, you know the story, right? He was the supplanter, and he obtained the blessing from God through deceit, right? He used deception and did things his own way in order to get the blessing. That's what... Jacob, that, was the, that is the characteristic of Jacob. In fact, when Jacob steals his brother's birthright, Esau, in his anger, says, Is he not rightly called Jacob? For he deceived me and took my blessing. And it's significant that later on, after many, many years of Jacob doing his Jacob thing, right? Of deceiving and taking matters into his own hands and seeking to help himself and... and and attain God's blessing through his own efforts and through his own deceitfulness, gets a name change after his encounter with the living God. And he gets his name changed from Jacob to Israel, right? And after that incident, Jacob is a different person. No longer trusting in his own prowess, deceptive methods and taking things into his own hands, but trusting in God after that episode. 
And there's even an allusion to Jacob in this passage, actually. Not only in verse 47, an Israelite indeed in whom there's no deceit. That is an allusion to Jacob, but also in verse 51, the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. That is the dream that Jacob had when he was running from Esau. Behold, an Israelite indeed. What makes, a tr- what makes an Israelite a true Israelite is he's not like Jacob. There's no deceit or guile in him. And Jesus is saying this so that we would all pay attention because this is not for Nathaniel alone. This is not a, simply a peculiar trait of Nathaniel, okay? He's not just saying, I want you all to know Nathaniel's like this. You don't have to be like this, but he is. You know, it's, just, it's kind of his own unique, peculiar trait. But the Bible tells us that we all need to become true Israelites, the children of Abraham. This is something to learn about and to become. This is for us all. In fact, it is necessary for salvation. If you're not a true Israelite, you're not saved, the Bible tells us. And so it's very important that we understand this and that we become this. So what does it mean, in whom there's no guile, in whom there's no deceit? That should make us all kind of sweat a little bit, right? Is there anyone here who can say that you have no deceit, no guile in your life? Well, here's what it can't mean. And Carvel, you just said it. This statement cannot mean that Nathaniel was righteous by his works, right? Behold, an Israelite indeed, whom there's no guile. This wasn't Jesus saying, behold, Nathaniel, by his works, by his behavior, by his performance, is sinless. He's righteous. He doesn't need me. <laughs> That's not what Jesus is saying. The Bible tells us that there is no one who is righteous, no one who is good, no one who does good, and that this is why Jesus came into the world, to save sinners. And we're all supposed to accept the fact that we're the chief of sinners. So no, this is not an affirmation. Behold, Nathaniel is righteous by his own works, sinless. No, we can rule that out on its face. Nor does it mean that Nathaniel never lied and that he was free from all pretense, okay? This one's a little bit harder to see, perhaps. But I don't believe when Jesus said he has no deceit, he means in every possible way, Nathaniel has no pretense. This is a man who never lies about anything. Psychologists tell us there are a million and one ways to lie, okay? And it is not just by telling bold-faced lies that we are liars in obscure truth. In a million and one ways, we hide truth, especially by omitting truth in our relations with one another. In a million and one ways. How are you today? Fine. How's your day going? Good. Did you like the sweater? Yes. What'd you think of that? Interesting. (laughs) Right? We don't just say exactly what we think. Perhaps there's some prudence in that, and it's not sin, but I think there is a lot of sin in, in, in a lot of that. And 
as sinners who have sinful natures, it seems that pretense is inseparable with being a sinner and having a sinful nature. That as sinners, we are just people of pretense. And we wear many masks. Now, did Nathaniel wear no masks? Did Nathaniel have no pretense? Whenever somebody asked him how his day was going, did he always say, I'm having a horrible day. In fact, talking to you makes me mad, you know? <laughs> I hated that sweater. Why did you make that for me? You know? <laughs> was Nathaniel that kind of guy? <laughs> did he wear no masks whatsoever? Then what does it mean if not this? Here's what I think it means, dear brothers and sisters. That there was one mask that Nathaniel did not wear. It was the fundamental, overarching, core, central mask that human beings wear. And Nathaniel didn't wear it. And that is the mask, the hypocritical mask of self-righteousness. Okay? He didn't wear that mask, the hypocritical mask of self-righteousness. Now, Augustine actually saw this a long time ago, and here's his comments, and I think he says it perfectly. I'm going to quote him. How was guile not in him if he is a sinner? Answer, he confesses that he is a sinner. For if he is a sinner and says that he is a just man, there is guile in his mouth. Therefore, in Nathaniel, Jesus praised the confession of sin. He did not judge that he was not a sinner. And I think Augustine nails it on the head here. When he says, here is an Israelite in whom is no guile, he's pointing to the fact that Nathaniel was unlike the hypocrites of his day and the hypocrites of our day. Everybody says, I'm a good person, you're a good person, I'm okay, you're okay, I'm doing it, you're doing it. Nathaniel was the kind of guy who said, I'm guilty. It wasn't that he wasn't a sinner, it was that he confessed that he was a sinner. And turn with me to Psalm chapter 32. And we have here a parallel statement. Psalm 32. Look at verse 1. This is a famous psalm. This is David writing about the forgiveness of sins and how blessed it is to have your sins forgiven. Paul quotes this psalm in Romans chapter 4. Verse 1 of 32. How blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no Deceit. Notice the connection here between forgiveness and not having deceit. Now, does this, now when David says, How blessed is the man whom God does not impute iniquity, is David saying, How blessed it is when God can't count iniquity against you because you don't have any iniquity for God to count against you? It's so great when God can't, can't, he can't mark your sins because you don't have any sins for him to mark. No, that's not what he's saying at all. He's saying that how blessed is the sinner to whom God doesn't count his sin, right? And the proof of this, verse 3, when I kept silent about my sin, 
my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, my vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. I said I will confess my transgression to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. It's not that he didn't have sin, it's that he wasn't confessing it. And when he didn't confess it, God's hand was upon him. And then when he confessed, God forgave him. When he stopped hiding, stopped wearing the mask. And in verse 6 says, Therefore let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time when you may be found. There are two kinds of people in the world. There is the righteous and there is the unrighteous. But the righteous are not righteous because of their own works and because of their own obedience. For all sin. But there's two kinds of people in the world, the righteous and the unrighteous, because the righteous confess and the unrighteous do not. That's the difference. The forgiven and the unforgiven. Because the forgiven Don't wear the mask, but come to God's light and agree with God. I am guilty of sin. I am worthy of damnation. I am not a good person. I am unrighteous. And God forgives them through his son. The righteous are those who, unlike Jacob, will not use deception and do things in their own way. I'm not going to get to heaven and a achieve God's favor by putting the mask on and deceiving and pretending I'm something that I'm not. I'm not going to be saved because I'm going to take matters into my own hands and pretend that I'm obeying the law. I'm going to be saved because I'm going to step out into the light, admit my sin and be saved by God and let him bless me by his grace through his promise and not through anything that I have done or earned. In fact, this is in the Gospel of John and in the Epistle of 1 John, this is what it means to be in the light or to be in the darkness, brothers and sisters. To be in the darkness means you're living in the lie of self-righteousness. To be in the light means you've come into the light of truth, the truth about God's righteousness which finds you to be guilty and which enables you to be saved. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, Uh, Verse 8 and 9, it says, If we say that we have no sin, we're a liar and the truth is not in us. In the context of being in the light or in the darkness, the difference is whether you say you have sin or not. And I know that there's many people in this world, pretty much everyone in this world will say that they have sin, right? If you ask the average person on the street, are you a sinner? Most people will say yes. But I, I want to say that And I think this needs to be clear. Even when people say that they are sinners, they aren't really saying that they're sinners, right? They say basically, I make mistakes. I'm not perfect. But if you mean by this question, am I a sinner? If you mean, do you fall short of what God requires and are therefore unrighteous and worthy of damnation? They'll say no. (laughs) They'll say, I'm a sinner. I am not perfect. But God doesn't require perfection, right? God doesn't require, so therefore, I haven't really fallen short of his standard. Yeah, I'm not perfect, but the, the standard isn't perfection. It's down here. I'm still above the line here, right? This is what John means is if we say we have no sin, he means if we say that we're above the line, 
then we're a liar and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, what? He is faithful and he is just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And the Bible says if we walk in the light as he is in the light, which means if we walk in the truth where he is, we have fellowship with him and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from how much sin? All. Forgiveness of sins, cleansing, comes to us through the blood of Jesus Christ who came into the world and died as the sacrificial victim for our sins so that those who confess their sins and come to God for mercy will receive it through the blood of Jesus Christ. That is the great message of Christ. What God has done for us. The truth of who he is, who we are, and his great salvation. This is how Nathaniel was an Israelite indeed without deceit. Because he was one of those people who wasn't wearing the mask of self-righteousness. In Romans chapter 2, verse 28 and 29, Paul says, He is not a Jew who is one outwardly in the flesh and whose circumcision is made by hands, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly in the heart by the Spirit whose praise is not from men, but from God. And this is a perfect example in John chapter 1 of the praise of God Here, Nathanael is being commended by Jesus Christ himself. He's not putting on the mask so that other human beings will commend him and say, oh, what a great person you are. Oh, what an amazing person. Oh, how holy you are. Oh, how righteous you are. He's taken off that mask, but because he's done that, he's receiving the approbation from God. Here is an Israelite indeed, in whom is no deceit. verse 48, Nathanael asks, how do you know me? Well, Jesus knows everyone. He knows everyone. And Jesus knows what is in you and what is in me. Jesus knows whether there's deceit in you or whether there's deceit in me. Of course, Jesus knows that we're all sinners and he knows all of our sin. And knowing all of our sin, he shows us his great love for us in dying for our sins. But he also knows who is putting on the hypocritical mask and who is, the, who is honest in confessing their sins before him. It's amazing. In verse 48, Jesus answers, Before Philip. Before Philip. You think that Philip is the one who introduced us? You think that our acquaintance began with Philip? No, our acquaintance began a long time before Philip ever arrived on the scene. I knew you. This is a beautiful statement of how God foreknows his sheep. And like Nathaniel, we believers are also foreknown. Before you became a Christian, before you were introduced to Jesus through whoever or whatever, he saw you and he knew you and he knows you who is his and who is not. Before Philip, whatever the fig tree meant, we're not going to get into that, it is something that Nathaniel understood and he recognized in it Jesus' omniscience of him and Nathaniel was one to Christ at that moment. And he said, Rabbi, teacher, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. From that moment forward, he believed and he followed Jesus. Nothing more of significance is said of Nathaniel. But brothers and sisters, this 
is his great and timeless legacy and instruction for us. This is the enduring lesson that he left us for the world, that he left to the world, that to be a follower of Jesus, we need to be Israelites indeed, in whom there is no deceit. We need to take off the mask of self-righteousness. And in closing this morning, just very briefly look at verse 50 and 51. Jesus has Jesus promised to all of his followers. Jesus speaks to Nathaniel of greater things that he will see. And it's pointed out by commentators that the Greek here is actually a plural you. So when he says, you will see greater things, you will see the, son of man, the angels descending and ascending on the Son of Man, the you is plural. He's referring to all of his disciples present, and I believe to all of his disciples of all time. Besides this miracle of omniscience, you will see greater things. Now, whatever these greater things are, they, un- they undoubtedly include, verse 51, the allusion to Genesis 28, Jacob's dream, when Jacob was running from Esau. And he dreamed of the angels of God ascending and descending on a ladder, a ladder that had its, its foot on the earth and its top in heaven. And the angels of God were coming down and going up on it. Now what this means when Jesus says, you will see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man is not certain. If you read the commentators, they're all going to disagree and no one's exactly sure what it means. In fact, nowhere else in the Gospel of John does this event occur, or at least does it seem to occur. Nowhere else in the Gospel of John does the heavens open and you see the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man, at least not explicitly. So what does Jesus mean by this? Well, some commentators think that this is figurative for Jesus' whole ministry, both on earth and in his ascension. That is, all that Jesus does, did, and does, uh, is represented by this, that Heaven and the angels are with Christ. In this view, Christ is seen as sort of, the, he's in the place of Jacob. Where if the, if, the, if the dream that Jacob has signifies that the angels of God are with Jacob, taking care of him and, and attending to him, then the idea is that the angels of God are with the Son of Man, attending to him. And as Jesus is in his, doing his ministry and his ascension, so heaven and the angels are at work, serving and operating. Other commentators see Jesus not as, the, not as Jacob in the story, but as the latter. They see Jesus as the latter. And what they think this means is that heaven and earth are connected by Jesus. The Son of Man is the latter, by which heaven and earth are reconciled and by which heaven and earth have communion. And most particularly, they think this is referring to the cross, that the Son of Man reconciling heaven and earth as the latter is his death on the cross. And still others take this to be something that will literally be fulfilled in the future. When Jesus comes again, the heavens will be open. And Jesus will return with the angels and then there will be communion between heaven and earth at that time in a visible, literal way. Now, whichever it is, all of these things are true, right? 
that throughout Jesus' ministry and in his ministry now that he achieves for us in heaven, Jesus Christ is like Jacob, uh, the one that heaven is supporting, the one that heaven is operating through and serving. And like the second view, Jesus is the ladder that reconciles heaven and earth through his cross. That is true. Jesus Christ, through his death, reconciles us to God and to heaven. And it is also true that we will literally see Jesus come. The heavens will be opened. The angels will come with him. And there will be literally communion between heaven and earth at that time. And all the followers of Jesus in all ages are granted the privilege of seeing these things, all of them. To follow Jesus, we have this promise of his. We will see, we will experience the great wonders and the works of God through the Son of Man. And we will be reconciled to God through the Son of Man. And we will witness and partake in the coming of the Son of Man. I think this is a promise for all followers of Jesus. You will see greater things. As we take the Lord's Supper this morning, let's remember the greatest thing that we have seen Let's remember the greatest thing that Jesus has done and that heaven has done through Jesus to reconcile us to God. And the greatest thing is that the Son of God incarnated and took on flesh and blood to die for your sins. Let's remember that this morning again, brothers and sisters. Can we do that? Can we remember again in honor of Jesus that he incarnated to die for you to take away your sins, to forgive you even though you don't deserve it, even though you're guilty, and to reveal to you God's amazing love and salvation and to bring you into eternal life and fellowship with God. There's really no words for this. Sometimes it is best remembered in a symbol. So as we take communion, let's remember this and give God praise for what he's done. May those of us this morning who, who are followers of Jesus rejoice that we are his sheep, that we are foreknown, and that God has done these mighty things, and that he's doing mighty things in our lives, and that he will do mighty things for us to come. And may those who are not today followers of Jesus give heed to his gracious invitation to come and to follow him and to confess their sins and to be saved. This is the time to do it because it won't last forever. And if you do that, my friend, if you follow Jesus, you will experience for yourself the all good that came out of Nazareth. And you yourself will then want to share it with others and give God all the praise. Please stand with me as we pray. Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who came into the world 2,000 years ago to teach, to guide, to bring us light And most of all, Lord, we want to remember now, once again,
the great sacrifice, the great cost, the great propitiation that was required and that was accomplished to bring us to you to reconcile us. We thank you for the forgiveness of all sin. We thank you that no matter how vile we are, Lord, that you forgive the worst when we confess and believe. Lord, I pray you'd fill us with wonder this morning. Help us to see afresh what you've done. And we love you for it. And we praise you for it. In the name of Jesus Christ, your son. Amen.